You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York. A community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. Y'all can remain standing for once for today's gospel reading. This is coming from Luke chapter 9, verses 28 through 43. Now about eight days after these sayings, these horrible sayings of Jesus that we've been talking about for the last two weeks, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on a mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said, and that is the story of my life. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice out of the cloud came saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. God, like my wife, is concise with his words, listen to him. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. This is an amazing moment. But then, on the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him and suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and it shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you wrestle with the world, the devil, and death, and that you win. We thank you that you have wrestled with us, and I pray that every morning you would wrestle with us, pin us to the ground, defeat us, and then remove from us everything that was causing us to war against you in the first place. We pray that the first heart you would conquer every day are our hearts. Stake your claim. We want you to be our Lord and our Savior. In your name we pray. Amen. You all may be seated. Before we jump into the sermon today, obviously talking about my wife reminds me of how wonderful it is that I get to live with her every day of my life. And once in a while, I look down at my finger and I see this wedding ring. And here's the thing about the wedding ring. Everybody watch in case I drop it so I don't lose it. This is not my marriage. This doesn't make me a good husband. This has never once, this piece of metal I'm holding, has never once done anything good or bad for my marriage. My heart has. The Lord has. This is a symbol. It reminds me, as we say in the wedding vows, that our love, like a circle, is constant. 
that love, like a precious metal, is expensive. All it is is a symbol. Wedding ring is not found in the Bible, but we wear them proudly because we know somehow it sounds like the kind of symbol God would use. This is what Ash Wednesday is. See what I did there? Ash Wednesday, here's what I want. I want everybody to come. And I'm perfectly fine however you want to participate in it. If you want to get ashes on your head in the form of a cross, you can. If you don't, I'm perfectly fine with it. I think it's worth experiencing. And here's how I personally feel about Ash Wednesday. Ash Wednesday is the day that we serve each other by receiving on our forehead a symbol, which is a cross in ash. And all that does is, here's the thing, when I have the ashes on my forehead, I can't see my own ashes. I can only see yours. And all that does for me is it reminds me, when I look at you, it reminds me that I'm human and broken and that the cross has redeemed the ash. That the cross has done something with my humanity that seems to do everything it can to destroy stuff. The cross has done something. And so I see Ash Wednesday as a day where we put on the armor of God. The armor of salvation, the gospel, the readiness, the truth, the shield. The cross is all of those things. And we put it on our foreheads for a brief amount of time to remind each other when we look at each other that Jesus is Lord, that we're forgiven, and that it's our job to go out into all the other ash out there and bring them the cross. And so I think it's an important day for us. But again, I understand if people don't feel comfortable, this may be part of your tradition. It may not be. Uh, one of the reasons why I have continued some of these liturgical realities is because I just feel like we're supposed to be hospitable. We're supposed to be all things to all people. And so when we can express our worship in many different ways, as my wife said, many different people can come here and have a taste of something they're used to and also get pulled into something they haven't tried before. And I think that's a wonderful thing that we do. So please, 7 o'clock, we said 7.30, we were just kidding. 7 o'clock, come on out on Wednesday night and enjoy that with us. With all of that said, today is the final Sunday of Epiphany, which is the celebration of the revelation of Jesus. And it's also the final Sunday of a series that we're teaching called Human or Broken. And again, just to refresh, what this means is we're either human or we're broken. We, in, in the evangelical culture, have spent a lot of time talking about our humanity as if it's bad. Our humanity was created, and I quote, very good is what God says over our humanity. It was created very good. Our humanity is good. Our sin has dehumanized our humanity. So when we read on social media or we hear about people who are dehumanizing others, what we're saying is our humanity is good and that we should not dehumanize other people. If our humanity was bad, it would be good to dehumanize other people. But we innately know it's not. So as an example that I gave our first week, if you are at your desk and you're talking and you're Italian with your hands and you accidentally knock over a cup of coffee onto the floor, one of the things we say is, I'm sorry I did that. I'm only human when we make mistakes. Honey, I'm sorry I said that to you. I'm only human. I've said that a lot of times. What we should be saying is, I'm sorry I did that. I'm not human enough. Because Jesus 
is God's perfect humanity. And we're being changed into the image of Christ. God is redeeming our humanity. That's why we put ash on on Ash Wednesday, because we were made from the dust, and God is reclaiming that dust and rebreathing the breath of life back into it again. Jesus' resurrected body was a physical human one, which is why he was able to eat and be touched. And Paul says that his resurrected body is the first fruits of our resurrected bodies, which means when we're raised, we're finally going to be human again. We're going to be all of what God intended our humanity to be. And so what we're doing this year is we're looking at Jesus and saying, here's the perfect human. Where does my humanity need to increase? And where is my humanity dehumanizing others? And so we say things like, go the extra mile. Why go the extra mile? Because God goes the extra mile in Jesus. God is the kind of human that if you ask him to go one step with you, he'll go 45. How many are glad God has taken that 45th step with you? When we go the extra mile, we don't only reveal God's humanity to the world, but we actually recapture the humanity of the person who we're going with. When somebody says, I know I've been rude to you, but can you help me? And you jump right in and say, sure, I would love to help you. You don't just reveal God's humanity. You also help them become more human because you're revealing God's humanity to them. Jesus says, turn the other cheek, our favorite verse. Everybody, every year fights over, I want this to be the verse for the year this year. Turn the other cheek. How many people have had turn the other cheek as your verse for the year? Why do we turn the other cheek? Because God in Jesus has turned the other cheek. God is the kind of human that if you slap him, he will stand there and let you slap him again. And when we don't take vengeance, but we forgive and we love, we don't just reveal God's humanity, we restore the humanity in the other person. Because when they see that kind of love, they see the person of Jesus Christ. And finally, we've been told that Jesus dies on the cross to change God's mind about us. Does God change? No. So this presents a fun problem I would like to spend three and a half hours with a whiteboard talking about, but per Carrie's compliment of my wife, I will not. God doesn't change. So Jesus was not on the cross trying to placate God, trying to go, whoa, whoa, don't get angry, hit me. That's not what he was doing, because God doesn't change. Jesus wasn't on the cross, listen to me carefully, changing the mind of God. He was on the cross showing us the mind of God. Jesus on the cross isn't changing God's mind about us, he's revealing God's mind toward us. He's saying, this is how God thinks about you. He loves you this much in spite of everything. Jesus is a revelation of God. He's not trying to abdicate his father. He's not trying to placate him. He's not trying to jump like we see in all the fun shows, jump in front of that bullet. He's showing us the father, and in showing us God, he's destroying sin because when sin sees that revelation of God, it can't hold up anymore. God will outrun sin in the end. 
he will run faster and he will run farther than sin ever was able to. Are we, are we okay? Want me to preach a more negative message? Because that comes easier. I don't mind. I'm trying really hard to be positive these days. I have a stomach ache over it. I'd rather go back to woe to the rich. Talk about that message again. So what's happening in this story, the Mount of Transfiguration story? Jesus calls three people to go up the mountain. He doesn't call everybody else to go up the mountain. We love this because we all want to be Peter, James, and John. Don't we? Peter, James, and John accidentally say stuff to Jesus like, we'll drink the cup that you drink. And Jesus is like, you will now. And they're like, great. And they don't know what they're talking about. And Jesus sometimes lets us do what we don't know what we're talking about. Hence, be wise with your words. He takes them up the mountain. And the first thing that happens is they fall asleep. They fall asleep up there. And I want to point out one thing about sleep. In the Exodus story, when Israel is faced with Egypt bearing down behind them and the Red Sea in front of them and mountains to the left and the right, they grumble against Moses and say, did you bring us out here to die? Here they come, and there's water in front of us. And we know the story. God says to Moses, stretch out your hand with the staff of God and watch what I do. And here's what I love about the text. It says, all night long, a wind blew over the waters and separated the waters to the left and the right. All night long. While they slept, God was preparing a revelation for them for when they woke up. While they slept, it doesn't say all day long, when they laid down in the middle of a seemingly hopeless trial, God readies a revelation for when they wake up. Jesus on the boat, there's a storm, and he's sleeping. And when he wakes up, he brings a revelation and he rebukes the storm. But he shows them that prior to the revelation, sleeping is the best option. I'm, I'm throwing you like a lot of moments to bring love offerings and stuff, you know. <laughs> but then in the Garden of Gethsemane, they're like, I get it, so we're supposed to go to sleep. And Jesus is like, wake up! You couldn't wait for me one hour, but what's happening here? In the Garden of Gethsemane, the time of darkness was at hand. Jesus has now pulled toward him everything wreaking havoc on our life. And he refuses to let them sleep because they need to taste what darkness does. And what darkness does is it keeps you awake. It keeps you awake. It doesn't, and I'm not talking about physical sleep. I'm talking about the sense of peace. Like it says, I believe in Philippians, the peace of God will rule your hearts. Peace isn't something we feel. Peace is something that rules over our hearts. Who's the prince of peace? That's why Paul says the peace can rule over you because peace is actually a person. There's a time where rest in the middle of confusion, where rest in the middle of the unresolved, where letting go and sitting with the Lord is the last thing that will happen before revelation. 
climb up that mountain, not knowing what's happening, fall asleep, and you wake up, and, and you look a little higher up the mountain, and there's Jesus standing with Moses and Elijah. A, how did they know it was Moses and Elijah? They didn't have Instagram. Wait a minute. I know who that is. I don't know. I, these things, whatever. It's not even the point. It has nothing to do with the sermon. They, it's Moses and Elijah. They're sitting there, and they see Moses and Elijah with Jesus. And they hear Moses and Elijah talking to Jesus about his departure, which in the Greek, Luke says, he heard Moses and Elijah talking to Jesus about Jesus' exodus. So what an interesting conversation this is for Moses. Where Jesus is now talking to Moses about everything his deliverance of Israel was pointing to. The chariots and the fire that came down from heaven in the days of Elijah. Jesus is talking about all the things that they're pointing to. Jesus is standing, hear me, because we're going to bring this point home in a little while. Jesus is standing on the mountain with the law and the prophets. He's standing on the mountain with God's entire narrative of humanity. He's standing on the mountain with everything God has ever said about his relation to us. He's standing on the mountain with all of scripture. How many would want this moment to last? Be honest. So Peter, who we've been dogging ever since he said this, says the most logical thing because y'all just said what Peter said. I said, how many would want this moment to last? Like Peter, you all said yes, which means all of us are getting rebuked in a moment. But Peter says, I know what I'll do because Peter's smarter than us. And instead of saying, I want this moment to last, he says, here's what we'll do. I know how to contain the presence of God because I've read Moses. And I know that if you build the tabernacle, he stays. So he says, I know what I'll do. How about we build three tabernacles? One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And the minute it comes out of his mouth, the minute the idea, I want to stay in this moment by myself. I want this individual experience of salvation. I want this experience on my own the way it is now. The three of us are up here. That's enough. The other ones, I guess they sin. They don't matter. Whatever's going on down there. Let's, you know, let's stay here. Let's stay on this mountain for a little while. Listen, Salem, we've done this with our salvation. We talk about salvation like it's primarily about me praying the sinner's prayer, and it doesn't matter what happens to you. Salvation is always about the people of God, which is why God doesn't let Peter build a tabernacle, because he's not supposed to stay there. He's not supposed to stay on the mountain of individuality. He's supposed to see something up there, so I'm not removing it, but what he sees in the individual moment is meant to be a gift to the other nine. God might choose you to see something amazing, and it's not because you're more right than somebody else. It's because he's gifting you with responsibility. All right? What else do we talk about? What does God say? This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. In another gospel, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. I want you to hear this point too. God has now said this to Jesus two times. 
The first time he says, this is my beloved son, is just before Jesus is driven in the wilderness to wrestle with Satan. And now, Jesus has climbed up his second to last mountain. He's got one more mountain to go. And the voice comes to him again, and it says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. How interesting is it that the voice of God affirms his relationship with Jesus before Jesus is tempted in the wilderness? He says, you're my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And what does the devil say in the wilderness? If you're the son of God. God calls Jesus and tells him who he is because the devil's about to question who he is. You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then you hear that voice. If you're the son of God, turn these stones into bread. Jesus is about to go to a place that's darker than the wilderness. He's about to go to a place where he's going to wrestle with a worse temptation coming from a worse person. On the Mount of Transfiguration, God says, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And when Jesus is on the cross, somebody he loves, one of the thieves next to him says, if you're the son of God, save us and save yourself. Satan has now put himself in the object of God's own affections. The thief on the cross that Jesus is desperately reaching out to is now saying, if you're the son of God. And Jesus has to remember, he already told me I'm the son of God. I don't need to prove it. And so I'm staying here precisely so that you can be saved from something much deeper than this physical ailment we're going through. Listen for God's affirming voice because where our trials go well is when we suffer knowing who we are in God. Where our trials go bad is when we suffer trying to prove ourselves. That's where they go bad. Whenever the result of my suffering is I need to prove to myself who I am and I need to prove to God who I am and I need to show that I'm a good Christian and I need to prove that I'm faithful, we are entering into the slippery slope of if you are sons and daughters of God. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to slip this one in there even though it's next week's text. But the first temptation of Jesus, Satan says, if you're the son of God, turn the stone into bread. And Henry Nguyen said... Jesus refused to make what he already was. Mm. He refused to make what he already was. I'm the rock and I'm the bread. I just need to look at it because I know who I am. But something else happens on the mountain. Something else happens on the mountain. Jesus sends them back down. (laughs) And It never happens again. Even after he's raised, something like that doesn't happen again. And I was thinking, and this is going to be a challenging point. I was thinking about Moses. When when Moses would come down the mountain, his face would be shining. And they would cover it because God didn't want them to see that kind of glory. And they would, they would want, they would stand in awe of the brightness of Moses' face. And so God finally said, I have to veil it. Because I don't want you indulging in that kind of glory. And I think we veil the face of Christ. 
because we don't want to see the kind of glory that he shows. We want a Mount of Transfiguration Jesus, where his clothes are dazzling white beyond how one translation says, how anyone could ever bleach them. Moms, all the stains got out of his clothes. No one could ever bleach them this white. No grass stains. We want that Jesus, but here's the reality. The glory of God is not seen as much in the Mount of Transfiguration as it is on the Mount of Disfiguration. See, Moses' face was shining, and so God had to veil it because we wanted it too much. Jesus comes, and his face isn't shining, and we spit in it, and we slap it. And we pull out his beard and because we don't want a normal pedestrian face to be the face of God. Because it's Calvary that is the real glory of God. It's disfigurement that is the real glory of God. It is God bleeding that is his glory. It is God with thorns pressed into his head that is his glory. It's God with stripes on his back that is his glory. That is when he most fully looks like God. When he is fully loving us in every undeserved manner possible. And so we want to preach a man of transfiguration, Jesus. But here's the thing. Get me at the door. Jesus makes them go down. But when it comes to Calvary, he says, climb up this mountain every day. Take up your cross daily and come follow me. I want you on Calvary's hill. But, so the question is, why the Mount of Transfiguration then? It is precisely in this moment why we need the Mount of Transfiguration. Follow. Jesus comes down the mountain. How many people have been on vacation and enjoyed themselves? <laughs> you enjoyed yourself on vacation. Had some smoothies. Right? Sat out in the sun. Burnt your face off because you fell asleep. Right? You enjoyed the vacation. And then you come home, and the split second you walk into your house, darkness, demons, exorcisms, brokenness, cars not even unpacked, and you're like, we really, I don't, I don't even want to burn the house down. I don't want to be in it. Right away. This is Jesus. They just had this beautiful moment on the Mount of Transfiguration. He comes down. And they get to the bottom, and they're like, uh, my son's got a demon, and your disciples are horrible at exorcisms. Can you do something about this, please? Where have you been? <laughs> if I'm Jesus, I would have said the same thing, twisted and sick generation. And that would have been it. I would have left after I said that. <laughs> Bye. Listen to me. Jesus is exasperated. Why? Was it surprising to him? Did he not know that was going to happen? Was he taken by surprise? No. He's all-knowing. So how could the all... Well, first of all, this point just popped in my head. Just because you know something's coming doesn't mean it won't exasperate you when it comes. There's a free one. Enjoy that. Maybe that was for me and I should have shut up about it. He's exasperated because now, now we see tension. Up on the mountain, light, white, brightness, shining, Moses, Elijah, the voice of God, clouds, we get to sleep, we wake up, we see Jesus, I love this, come down the mountain, demons and people arguing about how terrible the disciples are, because they can't cast a demon out of your son, I'd have been like, he's your son, what did you do? You're bringing him to us, I didn't raise him, 
You probably let him watch movies when he was growing up, didn't you? Probably let him watch He-Man and Smurfs. That anger is going to come out slowly. He's exasperated because now we see the tension between the light of salvation and the darkness of what still exists. And God becomes exasperated. Why? Because exasperation is part of how he redeems. It's not surprise. It's redemption. You ready? When Jesus comes down, he had just seen and heard, you're my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, which Jesus knows is true of all of us. He has felt the full acceptance of God, and now he's seeing the distance of his people and that acceptance and that love. And what does he do? He fills the space in between where we should be and where we are with this exasperating love. But unlike our exasperation, his ends with, come here, let me bring deliverance. When he gets exasperated, he doesn't leave. He pulls the evil toward him and removes it. And Jesus always sees a difference between evil and the person it's inhabited. That is important if we're going to be the church well. Jesus never removes the person. He pulls the evil out of the person. What is happening on the Mount of Transfiguration versus Calvary? I want us to look at this quick picture of the Mount of Transfiguration. No, we're just going to skip that one. Don't worry about it. Go to the Mount of Trans... Yeah. This is what the disciples see on the first mountain. They see Jesus with Moses and Elijah. Jesus with the law and the prophets. And then a week later... Or two weeks later, they see this. Jesus is first on a mountain with Moses and Elijah. And everything is right. But then Jesus goes to another mountain where he's not flanked with Moses and Elijah. He's now flanked by two criminals. But watch this. Moses and Elijah represent the law and the prophets. Everything God has ever commanded humanity exists in Moses and Elijah. And when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? Here's what he says. He says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your... And when you do this, you will fulfill all the law and the prophets. So when Jesus is on Calvary, he's loving God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength by doing what God told him to do, and he's loving his neighbor as himself, and he's turning the criminals into the law and the prophets. He's turning us into Moses and Elijah. He's turning us into the fulfillment of everything God commanded on the cross. That mountain is the glory of God. That's why God veils Moses' face, because the glory for us, while we're still in this sinful flesh, won't look bright. It'll look like Jesus on a cross. But when we're changed, listen, when we're changed, and as we change, we will start to look at the pedestrian face of God in Jesus, and we will start to see it like it was the Mount of Transfiguration. Watch. Jesus shows three disciples the Mount of Transfiguration, so that when the rest of them see Calvary, 
those three disciples can tell them, I know it looked bad, but actually it looked like this and describe the Mount of Transfiguration. God wants us coming down the mountain and he wants us looking at all the ugliness and brokenness and having a vision of God and saying, in what you think is dark, there's really beauty here. In what you think is broken, just like Natalie said, in this valley, God will strengthen you. There's light and you don't know it. We're supposed to be that light. We're supposed to be reflections of the Mount of Transfiguration, but not stay up there. Come down the mountain and enter the darkness and show everybody that even though this looks like death, it's really life. Even though this looks broken, it's really God's revelation because we should be walking manifestations of God's revelation. That's what Lent is. Lent is the moment when we stand in the hope of what is to come and sense the distance between us and that hope. Go to, go to the other one. Is that you up there, Dad? Hey. Dad, do what I say. Go to the other one. <laughs> Pretend it's March, it is, and you're so excited about your upcoming summer vacation, which we'll call the final Easter, the resurrection. But in the, in the analogy, I cannot wait until it's summer vacation. And so here's what Advent is. Advent is when we remember our previous summer vacation to make it a little easier to wait in March, because March is terrible, and there's more snow coming, right? And so we do things like, man, remember when we were in the sun? Remember when we were drinking Mai Tais and stuff? Whatever it is that you drink? Remember when we were away? Remember when we were barbecuing outside and it was nice? I tried to barbecue outside last night. No lie, it's freezing. It's freezing cold. I'm trying to relive those days. And sometimes we remember so well that we get really excited and we're like, maybe it's almost here. And then we realize there's a distance between us. I'm going like this. Put the other arrow up, please. There we go. Lent is when we get so excited by remembering something that we think it's almost here. And we realize, ah, it's not though. It's still March. That's Jesus being flummoxed. You wicked and twisted generation. He's lenting in that moment. Lent is when we realize that we're hoping for something. And hope, by its definition, is both excitement and pain. It's excitement because you know something's coming. It's pain because it's not here yet. And here's the reality. If anybody thinks we shouldn't be talking about darkness during Lent, is there still, still sex trafficking going on? Are people still being treated in racial ways that are bad? Are the powers that be still corrupt? Is there still poverty? Get down off the mountain of transfiguration. Stop trying to build tabernacles. There really is darkness that we need to pay attention to. Maybe not for me because I'm saved, but my salvation doesn't remove me from the world. It gives me a responsibility in it. It gives me a responsibility in it. I don't like when we talk about the darkness. I don't like, no one does. But we have to because it still exists. And we could put ourselves in a crow's nest someplace and pretend it doesn't. But it does. And we have the responsibility. We're here. We all worship today. We are beaming with that light of transfiguration. We need to go out into that darkness and know that it exists and that it's real and that God has a purpose for us in it. Let me show you that purpose. This is a moment for me and Ian right now. Because this happened in 2003. I'll move this out of the way. Anthony, get ready. It's not yet. So I just said get ready. You're all excited. 
He like walked over on his toes, like so excited. This was 2003. I was volunteering in the youth group, and in 2003, I was having a very, 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 it was just a tough time in my life, and I had an argument with my parents, and I storm out of the house, and I'm walking, and God gave me a revelation that I want to share. Can we, can we get this going? Are we good? I say this is a moment for me and Ian because a long time ago, this is the first message I ever preached to the youth group in this house. And Ian helped me set this up with a canister light. This is far cooler than that. But now here we are a long time later, and God reminded me of this. And this is Lent. This is the Mount of Transfiguration. I was walking. I storm out of my house, and you slam the door. Boom. And then you try to slam the screen door, but it doesn't close fast. So you're like, huh. And then it goes, like, shut. And I turn, and I'm walking. And right here, God gives me, I think, my first revelation. And I'm standing there looking at my own shadow. And the Holy Spirit says, when your back is to me, you're constantly walking in darkness. It's a shadow of your making, and the farther from me you get, the longer that shadow will get, because the farther from me you get, the more you're going to trust and rely on yourself. But on a version, see, when you're looking at a shadow, you could pretend it looks like anything. You can hide in a shadow. No blemishes in a shadow. And I'm standing there on Alfred Drive in the town of Poughkeepsie in 2003, looking at my own shadow, and the Holy Spirit says, but if you turn and you walk toward me, not only is the shadow behind you, not only are you walking in light, but you're light. Do you see that? This is why, this is, this is why the sun represents Jesus and the moon represents the church. Because the moon is not a light, it's a reflection of the sun. The sun is always out and perfect. But the moon is sometimes full, like us, sometimes half, sometimes the toenail, sometimes not there at all. And, and, the, ready? and the brighter it is, the more craters you can see. I could preach that for a minute. The more the sun shines on it, the more you see craters, which means when you look at the moon when it's full and you see all those craters, what you see is resilience. What you see is that bad things can happen and you could still be light. That's what the world needs to see in the church. It needs to see a scarred up body that can still reflect light. The moon has not ever gotten plastic surgery and I don't think it ever will because Jesus, when he rose, still had his scars. So the light is behind me. Anthony, come here. But watch what happens. Stand right here so the people can see you. Face me. Just stare at me the whole time. That'll be. I've turned. And I'm walking towards God. But somebody comes into my life who hasn't turned yet. And I'm walking in darkness again. But it's not my darkness. It's his and so it seems like it's getting dark, but it's because I've, like Jesus, I've come down off the Mount of Transfiguration into darkness, but I'm still light. 
And so my job now is to navigate this darkness for Anthony. That's what Lent is. Lent is us looking like transfiguration, bright people coming down into this darkness and reflecting it in their darkness and getting them to turn so that we're both facing him eventually. Thank you. That's what Lent is. The beauty of the Mount of Transfiguration is that we have spent so much of our time trying to get people up the mountain. When Jesus comes down the mountain, we're trying to get people who are unable to get up there and Jesus is coming down. And when it came time for him to go up, he went up the mountain as us, unable to. He needed help. Simon dragged him up. Jesus climbed up the mountain in a way that we would climb up it, falling. Jesus comes down the mountain in the way that we will one day, transfigured. But we have to embrace Lent because Lent reminds us. My, the day we celebrate our anniversary, I just like this for a minute. This is cool. Can we just leave it for a second? I feel like I've won an award or something. I'd like to thank my dad. Oh my gosh. It's what Lent is. When we celebrate an anniversary, that's not the day. It's an anniversary. It's not the day we actually got married. You only celebrate that once. But you go through a season where you re-celebrate it again. Not because you're getting remarried again, but because you're remembering what it was like the day you did. The day where not only did God come down the aisle without a veil, but he removed the veil over our eyes too. We celebrate birthdays. It's not the day you were actually born. That only happened once. But you celebrate birthdays rhythmically because you're remembering what it was like. Celebrating. Whatever, the, you know, if you're dating, you, you, when you're annoying, you celebrate your three-month anniversary. It's disgusting, but whatever. <laughs> People do that. Because you're trying to stay in step. And then when it comes to the church, we get freaked out. Why do we have to celebrate Lent? Why do we have to celebrate Advent? Because this is what humans do. We re-celebrate things to remember what it was like. And this is the celebration of the call of God on the church. Go into all the world and be light in the darkness. That's what Lent is. That's what Lent is. Why don't we all stand to our feet this morning? If you're here and you have never been baptized before, or if you're here and you've been baptized and you have that feeling like, you know what, I want to I go back into the waters again. If there's anybody here that wants to be baptized, would you please raise your hand? Yo, we got a baptism service on Easter Eve. I'm happy about that. I am so happy about that. On April 20th, on Easter Eve, at 7 p.m., because everything is at 7 p.m. now because my wife is organ and streamlining the organization in the church. She's like, you got things at like 4 and 6 and 7.30? And I'm like, that's awesome. She's like, no, it's not. Easter Eve. If you want to go into the waters of baptism, we're going we're gonna to send you a lot of information. There's a, there's a sign-up. We need your email. We need your number so we can communicate very vital and very important information to you. 
so we can get you ready to be baptized, so we can have discussions, so that we can really make this an experience for you. The, that morning, we're going to invite everybody who's getting baptized to come and have breakfast with people who got baptized last year so, so we can just share. We want this to be a very memorable experience. So please, if you want to be baptized, sign up. It's vital that you sign up so we can get the information to you. But that is what's happening. That's why we end Lent with baptism, going down into the darkness but coming up into the light. When we come to the table of the Lord... We're coming to the light, and we're also coming to brokenness. When we come to the table, we come to the light, and we also come to brokenness. Because when we leave here, we leave as light, going out toward brokenness. To be the Mount of Transfiguration, to be Mount Calvary for people. We are responsible for the world's brokenness, to heal it to bring reconciliation. Not in giant exploits, but handing out food at a food pantry, joining Habitat for Humanity, putting your arm around your coworker, being the one who doesn't say maligning things about somebody at your job who does deserve to have maligning things said about them. Any difference is light shining in darkness. That's what we're here for. Salem, nothing we do matters at all if we don't leave here different than the people we're going out to interact with. It doesn't matter. God did not die on the cross so we would have fun on Sunday at church. That's part of it. But the rest of it is go into all the world and preach the gospel. So I want everybody to close your eyes and just bow your heads. If anybody here is not walking with the Lord and you're hearing this light and darkness talk and something in you is just jumping around saying, I need, I need to turn. I'm walking in my own shadow, and I need to turn. If there's anybody in the room like that, I just want you to raise your hand. We're not going to have you come forward or anything like that. I see you in the back. I see you in the back. I see you in the back. I'm going to ask uh, Paul and Barbara Hansen after service. If you just raised your hand, after service, I'm going to ask our elders, Paul and Barbara Hansen, to stand right here. And if you just raised your hand when everyone else is leaving, just come forward and introduce yourself. Let them pray with you. Talk to them about what's going on, what's going on in your heart right now. Just let them talk with you and, and, and you guys can share. So if you just raised your hand, I think there's three or four people. Come and see uh, Elder Paul and Barbara Hansen here as soon as we give the blessing. And now we're going to come to the table. And Salem, I'm telling you right now, the presence of God is in the room. The presence of God is in the room. This is what we wait for all week. This is what we wait for. And I'm convinced in its own way the presence of God is downstairs right now too. Lord Jesus, it was on the night when you were betrayed that you took this bread and you broke it. And you gave it meaning and you said, this is my body broken for you. Whenever you eat this, eat it in remembrance of me. And then you picked up the chalice. And what everybody thought was just wine, you said this is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink this, do it in the remembrance of me. And you gave bread and you gave wine meaning. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that you fall on the gifts that we've brought to you, this bread and this juice that we've brought to you. And we pray that you fall on it right now and give it meaning. Let it become the body and blood of Jesus, the food and drink of new and unending life in him. And I pray that you would fall on this congregation 
and look at all, everything in our life that is spilled and everything in our life that is broken. And we pray, Holy Spirit, right now that you would fall on it and you would give it meaning. That somehow you would pick up our brokenness and turn this church into the manifest presence of God when we leave here. And so we thank you when we come to your table expecting to be changed and made new. In your holy, precious name we pray. And everybody said. Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.